Hello and welcome to today's Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Ash Sarka at IO Caesar for the Cyborgs Among You. And I'm here with Navara Media co-founder and noted Pisces, Aaron Bastani at Aaron Bastani. Today we're joined by Supir Sinha, Senior Lecturer in Institutions and Development at SOAS to talk about Modi's India. From the recent protests at Jawaharlal... My God, that was mangled. JNU and in Hyderabad to the BJP's aggressive program of cultural assimilation combined with neoliberal economic ideology. Um, thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me here. Um, so feel free to tweet along using the hashtag NavaraFM or just at us to abuse us directly. Um, so I guess to kick off, we should ask why this show and why now? Um, the first important bit of context for today's show are the huge protests and the campus shutdown of JNU in Delhi. And this was prompted by the arrest of Student Union President Kanhaya Kumar and five others on charges of sedition. Kumar's arrest, detention and subsequent beating by a mob of lawyers, like believe it or not, that actually happened, came after he gave a speech on campus castigating Modi's government record on casteism, women's rights and the climate of hatred stirred up against religious minorities. Kumar stands accused of being an anti-nationalist, and this comes against a backdrop of political repression arguably unseen since the emergency. Um, BJP Home Minister Rajnath Singh has said, if anyone shouts anti-India slogans and challenges the nation's sovereignty while living in India, they will not be tolerated or spared. Now, anti-nationalism sounds like a pretty decent political proposition to me, but it's crucial to note that Kumar's speech was actually an attack on poverty, state violence and right-wing Hindu nationalist complicity in colonialism. And I quote, Whose blood do they want to spill? They aligned with the British and fired bullets on the freedom fighters of this country. They fired bullets when poor people demanded bread. They fired bullets when people dying of hunger talked about their rights. They have fired bullets on Muslims. They have fired bullets on women when they demand equal rights. And as Priyam Vada Gopal points out in her excellent article for The Guardian, which I thoroughly recommend, Kumar was arrested under one of India's many outdated pieces of legislation. And this was the sedition law, which was intended to prevent anti-colonial resistance. And this prohibits inciting disaffection towards the government. Many in India's freedom struggle, including Gandhi, were actually detained under this law and in recent years has been used liberally to constrain those who had challenged the transgressions of the post-colonial state. And the other important development of recent weeks is the wave of caste protests in Haryana, in which members of the Jat caste group um, protested the government's opposition to quotas for lower caste students in higher education. And they blocked roads around Delhi, they set fire to railway stations and cars, and temporarily shut down a crucial canal that is a major source of the city's water. Boom. Um, 19 people were killed and police were firing live ammunition into crowds. And at the same time, Aaron Dutty Roy is facing prosecution for calling for an academic, a disabled English literature professor, in fact, to be released on bail. And um, I guess the first question is, how do we square this political climate of intense repression of academic and political freedoms with the sheer size of the mandate that Modi received back in 2014? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's really kicked off in the last few months in terms of the fact that uh, what is happening in JNU has been preceded by uh, events at the Hyderabad Central University, which was about a month ago. Uh, and before that, you had uh, events that had taken place at the uh, FTII, the Premier Film Training Institute of India in Pune, and as well as some of the other premier campuses like the IIT in Madras and so in Chennai. So there has been a kind of build-up of 
uh, resentment against Modi and repression by Modi's government against those who are uh, involved in a number of campaigns on the university campuses. Uh, to me, this is massively surprising at one level because if you looked at his mandate and particularly if you looked at the youth vote that he received, uh, he was marketed as a youth icon uh, from what we have seen of the breakdown of the votes of the 2014 general elections. Uh, the age group 18 to 30, probably 60-odd percent of that had voted for Modi. So there was a core constituency that Modi had, which seems to be turning away from him. Uh, uh, the BJP has made an argument that this is a minority of students and that perhaps you know could be correct, that you know the majority of students are not out on the streets and protesting. But the signal that the Modi government has sent to students and to universities and to academic institutions in general has been of a very negative variety. And I I want to make two points in this regard. One is why universities? Uh, basically, the RSS has, to which, which is the cultural formation from which Modi and many members of the BJP have emerged, uh, have long resented the fact that universities and academics in general have not taken seriously the quote-unquote intellectual lineages of the RSS. And they basically wanted to make sure that now that they were in power, they would try to place key people within academic institutions at the level of director, you know, the director of these institutions and the like. For listeners out there, what is the RSS? The RSS is an organization, the full form of which is the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which otherwise means the nationalist self help society. Uh, it is arguably the world's largest non-governmental organization. Uh, its own formation uh, basically can be traced back to the last days of the British colonial rule in India. And uh, it is, if you want to call it that, it is a kind of ideological fountain from which the BJP and a number of other affiliated organizations like the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the Bajrang Dal, the Durga Vahini and so on, you know, uh, emerge. So they, they, they believe in the concept of a so-called Hindu Rashtra that effectively in India people of the Hindu faith are the true citizens are, are in fact the privileged citizens and they basically want to have what they believe is a kind of decolonization of uh, intellectual life and of culture within India and they've also supported a number of rel relatively militant formations many of whom have been involved in the destruction of mosques uh, in India for example from the 1990s onwards. I mean I think one of the things that um, is really important <clears throat> to point out about the RSS is just how much they were influenced by European fascist movements. Um, for example, its founder believed that Nazi Germany had manifested race pride at its highest um, by purging the Jews. Now, that's not to say that um, their Hindutva um, or Hinduness ideology hasn't developed since then, but I think it's an important uh, political lineage to... Um, that's true. See, they, they basically emerged out of a time of uh, hyper-nationalism in Europe. And of course, they had those close connections as well, not only just in terms of reading material written by Hitler and then uh, approving of many of Hitler's actions. But less known uh, is the fact that they also had close relations with Mussolini. And in fact, uh, the use of the stick in RSS, in RSS uh, branches for their calisthenics, uh, the fact that they wear, uh, you know, khaki shorts, uh, all seems to have come 
come out of a conversation between the RSS's delegate, which had gone to meet Mussolini in the 1930s. And in fact, there is a very good article by uh, an uh, by an Italian academic uh, just yesterday in the Wire, uh, Diego, uh, who's uh, based at the University of Nottingham, who uh, has made the link more explicit between Italian fascism and the RSS. Here's a quote. Actually, I think he was. This guy wasn't the founder of the RSS. I think he was the second supreme leader. They were yeah. called right. This guy's called M.S. Goldwalker. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And here's the quote: The non-Hindu people of people of Hindustan must either adopt Hindu culture and languages, must learn and respect and hold and reverence the Hindu religion, must entertain no idea but of those of glorification of the Hindu race and culture. In a word, they must cease to be foreigners or may stay in the country wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, hmm. claiming nothing, deserving no privileges, far less any preferential treatment, not even citizens' rights. Now, this gentleman, M.S. Goldwalker, um, is considered an inspiration for Narendra Modi. He even wrote a bio- biographical profile of him in a book. I can't pronounce the title, maybe you can. But clearly he's... Uh, go on, give that a shot. I just find this is a real tongue twist. It looks like Icelandic. It's called Jyoti Punj. Jyoti Punj. Jyoti means light. Jyoti Punj, okay. Yeah. You're going to have to do that for me as well. I over-assimilated, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> of course, yeah. So, um, but this is, so there's a bigger... Because obviously for a British audience, very unfamiliar with the sort of uh, the history of the BJP, the RSS. Yes. They just think Modi is this very big, charismatic, populist guy, come from nowhere, filled a gap. Yes. But there's a bigger story here, right, about Hind- Hindutva, Hinduness, yes. and a particular nationalist project. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think many people in England think of uh, politics in India as the Congress Party representing some kind of a Labour Party equivalent and the BJP representing something like the Conservative Party here. But I think that would be a wrong analogy for a number of reasons. I mean, if you look at the uh, Conservative Party's policies, uh, there is a streak within the BJP that would have liked it to have gone into a Thatcherite direction, but that is not really the dominant wing of the BJP. The dominant wing of the BJP is really cultural nationalists of this particular stripe that you're talking about. Uh, many of the things that they say about minorities in particular, but not only minorities, women, what they should wear, where they should go, and so, so on and so forth, uh, is actually akin to uh, either religious fundamentalist groups here in the West, or to some extent you can think of comparisons with the EDL here or the KKK in the US, because lynchings, uh, you know, uh, torching of mosques or of churches, these are not completely uncommon incidents in India, and particularly since 2012-2013, one has seen a kind of an upsurge in that. Hmm. So I feel we've got um, two things that um, it would be great if you could uh, unpick them for us. The first is the nature of the antagonism between uh, the Congress Party and the BJP. Um, I was talking to um, one of the women who runs a group called Multicultural Cinema at Goldsmiths. You should check them out. They're excellent. Mm. And one of the points that she was making is that often we frame the BJP as entirely ideologically and politically opposed to to the Congress Party. But what is unexamined is the way in which they often have worked together or have had some similar nationalist aims. And that maybe we can read uh, Modi's election rather than just um, the BJP annihilating the Congress Party politically, but as symptomatic of the Congress Party stepping back. So that's one thing that I think I would like for you to unpick. And the other is the relationship between... Modi's very particular neoliberal economic program and this right-wing, regressive cultural nationalism. So I'm going to throw those over to you. Okay. Uh, 
you know, I mean, this um, whether or not the BJP and the Congress are completely opposite of each other is a good question. I mean, if you look at the uh, you know numbers of seats that the BJP has in the parliament right now, close to one third of them are basically defectors from other political party, including the Congress. I mean, you've got members of the Congress party who were ministers in the previous government who then jumped ship just a few months before the last election and are now prominent members of the BJP. So there is a kind of a floating population of MPs who will switch sides depending on their assessment of how the elections might turn out. Uh, and, you know, the fact that they can be accommodated within supposedly an ideological opponent speaks quite highly in terms, you know, is, makes the whole sort of scenario very clear. Uh, also, you know, one could, I think, with justification, talk about the fact that the Congress did not uh, serve the cause of secularism in any particularly exemplary way. Uh, not only was it the case that Mrs. Gandhi was cynical in her use of uh, Bindranwale in the case of Punjab, uh, who of course then became the leader of the Khalistani separatist movement. But also, if you look at uh, you know the entire question of the Babri Masjid, which was destroyed by the BJP in 1993, uh, ultimately uh, in 1992, ultimately it turns out that the doors to that mosque and the installation of a small idol of the you know uh, Hindu god Ram all took place within uh, you know when India was being ruled by the Congress, in, in, you know, including by Rajiv Gandhi. And in fact, when at the time when the mosque was destroyed, India, the Prime Minister of India was a Congress person, Narsimha Rao. So the Congress uh, has been to some extent complicit and has to, you know, one could uh, probably make an argument that they have had, they have been the kind of soft Hindutva for quite a long time. And if secularism in India today has a bad name, uh, and to the extent that the word pseudo-secular is quite popular in political discourse, then the Congress has a lot to answer for the fact that they have besmirched the idea of secularism to such an extent that it becomes available for Modi uh, almost as a gift on a platter. I was going to say, I mean, this is a common theme we see with a lot of you know countries that come from a colonial history. Yes. And then they move to something else that we see with the domestic political parties. They tend to stick around for a long time. Something in Ireland, mm. they've got an election today, right? Fianna Gael, Fianna Fail. The cleavage isn't class. Mm. Clearly, it's the colonial oppressor, mm. and they're an anti these are parties born out of anti-colonial struggles. Yes. So how does class? Because clearly, class doesn't play a role in Irish politics. Yes. It hasn't played another another very very sort of esoteric example is Iceland. Mm. Sure, because yes. it was a colony of Denmark, class never really strikes Icelandic politics. It was yeah. always about getting away from Denmark. How does class strike then Congress and the BJP? See, class and, I mean, firstly, caste and class are not identical, obviously, in India, but they do have a fairly close correspondence. I mean, one of the easiest way to think about this would be if you asked, you know, how many temple priests in India are from Dalit caste, and you'd probably come across not too many cases of that. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you wanted to ask how many people who, cl who clean drains and uh, are otherwise involved in sanitation work are from the upper caste, and you'll f find that there are very few there as well. Having said that, there are pockets in the country where upper caste people are also very poor. Uh, for example, if you looked at uh, Bihar or uh, borders of Bengal, some of the poorest groups there would be some, uh, you know, from, from Brahmin caste and so on. So I want to sort of keep that a little bit to one side and I want to come back to the issue of something that Modi particularly was able to mobilize in his favor, which was a class that he referred to as the neo-middle class. And that, I think, is a very interesting group of people. These would have been people who were beneficiaries of... 
the reservations uh, and affirmative action quotas that were brought into uh, place in the uh, early 1990s. Uh, so, in other words, they would not have been upper caste people. Uh, they would have been from the so-called middle castes and perhaps even aspirational elements of Dalit uh, castes. In other words, those who wanted to leave their uh, ascribed professions and saw some degree of mobility in the last uh, 20 odd years of neoliberal economic reforms. So, there is that class, which is a class which is not easily identifiable as either working class or the middle class, but is kind of transitioning from one to the other. And they see within Modi's uh, agenda, or at least within his rhetoric, uh, the ability for greater degrees of social mobility. Now, paradoxically, even though the BJP has, uh, you know, uh, been in, uh, involved in a number of, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the current rhetoric in Indian politics and the uh, animosity between Dalits and uh, the BJP, the fact remains that the BJP has 40 members of parliament who are Dalits, which is much more than, uh, you know, uh, other political parties. So it's quite interesting that the BJP has tried to accommodate Dalits within a kind of a Hindutva format. In other words, uh, Dalits who believe that their future is as Hindus in the country rather than Dalits who decide to take leave of Hinduism have moved to some extent in Modi's favor. So he was very much, I think, able to have a cross-class and cross-caste constituency behind him in the run-up to the election. And what that means is that some of these castes and classes might have been uh, the you know relatively stable uh, basis for support for other political parties. And he was able to break some of those uh, solid alliances that people had and consolidated enough of a constituency behind him to get the 31% of the vote, which you know ended up with them having the kind of mandate that they did before. So uh, I think they had a very good understanding of caste and class, Modi and the BJP. And also I think they had a pretty good understanding of how to uh, widen cleavages that existed in already consolidated caste and class uh, kinds of combinations. However, given the fact that uh, at the end of the day, you have a very massive and unwieldy coalition of caste and class behind him. To some extent, one could argue that it is not surprising that that particular constituency is beginning to unravel now. Um, there's a really excellent essay on this by um, Anand uh, Tel. Teltumde. Yeah, Teltumde. Teltumde. Yeah, one uh, called, of the uh, best of our Dalit intellectuals at the moment. Yeah, yeah. called mm. uh, Hindutva Dalits and Neoliberal Order. Um, yeah. I thoroughly recommend reading it. And one of the things that comes up in the um, the collection of this essay is, um, quite a lot is Dalit complicity in um, aggressive acts of Hindutva ex expansion or acts of violence. And um, one of the things that uh, these essays are trying to make sense of is Dalit involvement in the 2002 Gujarat yeah. pogroms in which uh, over 2,500 uh, Muslims were killed mm. and uh, over a quarter of a million people displaced. Mm. And I mean, it, it took a lot of... Um, thinking and soul searching for me to try and make sense of this as well, like in my reading and my research for the show. And one of the things that struck me was the way in which the BJP was able to position itself as a, and this seems um, counterintuitive because of how highly they value entrenched social hierarchy. Mm. They were able to position themselves as a party of inclusivity mm. and essentially appeal to Dalits by saying Congress has ossified a corrupt social elitist hierarchy yep. which which hasn't been based on the right things it's been dynastic it's been um, nepotistic whereas the hierarchy that we offer 
is a inclusive one. Mm. You will occupy your proper social place. You'll be cared for by a you know, sense of almost like noblesse oblige by the higher castes. That's right, yep. Mm. Um, and that that is how things should be. And I think um, one of the things that I would like to ask you about is, one, has that ideology, has that, na- has that narrative remained... Um, an effective social mobiliser, mm. um, especially in the wake of these caste-based protests at the moment. And two, what are the ways in which caste and class can be seen to work together, or at least in ways which are mutually reinforcing mm. in Modi's India? See, uh, you know, I think that if you think in terms of Dalits in India, one of the things is there's probably not, if you if you map out, you know, Dalits in India, I think that they follow at least three or four different political trajectories. So, for example, it, the kind of mobilization of Dalits behind the uh, behind the BJP and the so-called Sankh Parivar, for example, in the state of Maharashtra, behind the Shiv Sena, is of a completely different order. And I think it partly goes back to the history of Dalit politics in Western India as being quite distinct from, for example, Dalit politics in Southern India, in Tamil Nadu, and especially in Telangana and in Andhra Pradesh. These are two states where, for example, lots of Dalits did convert to Christianity or perhaps to Buddhism or perhaps to some other religion. They do not have the same kind of allegiances to the BJP as you see Dalits in in Western India do. Likewise, if you looked at Dalit politics in states like Bihar, where there is a good crossover between uh, radical Dalit politics and parties of the populist left or even of the revolutionary left, you can see that it, a, a third trajectory, if for example, in Punjab and in, and in Uttar Pradesh, where Dalit politics has rallied behind specifically Dalit political parties like the Bahujan Samaj party and things like that. So I don't think that one could make an argument that Dalits in general were mobilized behind the BJP. But yes, in Maharashtra and Gujarat, they were. And I think there are two different reasons for that. One is that uh, if you look at the uh, the so-called Dalit Panthers and the uh, Republican Party of India, the two major Dalit political parties of Maharashtra, they have been able to uh, you know get assimilated within the larger Maharashtra politics of the Shiv Sena, which was an ally of the BJP. So even today, for example, you find that there are uh, members of the old Dalit political formations who are quite close to Modi. The Gujarat in, uh, you know, case is an interesting one because, as you say, the Congress was also a very exclusive political party. And in the case of Modi, you know, he's quite ambiguous about his own caste position in the sense that, uh, you know, one doesn't want to you know, think of him as primarily a caste-based leader. But he comes from a caste called the Ghachi caste, which has traditionally been a caste which is associated with trade in uh, food oils. Okay, And uh, that's not an upper caste. That's kind of either the middle of the so-called other backward caste or even towards the lower end of that particular spectrum. So Modi does, I think, embody within himself a particular narrative of social mobility. Okay, He's not someone who's very well educated. Uh, he does not come from you know, a dynastic political formation. The fact that the RSS becomes the vehicle for his ascent in politics I think could be seen by some people as a path to emulate. And I think in the case of Gujarat, uh, one thing which is very significant, and I think this is not only something which is common to India, is the role of violence in consolidating the idea of a new political community. So the deployment of Dalits and in fact, in some cases of tribal populations as well, in the violence of 2002, 
creates that kind of a community that is based on complicity in collective violence. And I think that is a core element for the BJP's support among Dalits there. I also think that having come to power in the center, the Dalit support for the BJP is dwindling very fast. Because if you consider what happened in Hyderabad Central University, where one of the uh, young scholars who happened to be uh, from a Dalit uh, background committed suicide in reaction to repression within the university, to the politics that he and some others were following. It was um, suspended along with four or five other students, I think. Yes, I mean, they're basically uh, first institute. I mean, you know, uh, just as a background to your listeners, you know, they were looking, they, they had a screening of a film uh, which was on Kashmir and there were discussions around that. Some of the Dalit students, but not only Dalit students, had decided to hold a so-called festival of beef and pork. Uh, the BJP's affiliated uh, students uh, party, which is called the ABVP, uh, had taken grave exception to that. And in fact, uh, the, the university botched the entire, you know, investigation into what was going on. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, Rohit uh, Vemula, the young man, committed suicide. What was far more unseemly was the way in which uh, the BJP and in particular the minister for what we call in India the human resources development or the minister for education and some others began to question whether or not he was Dalit. Uh, and I think that that made the entire uh, caste element of uh, that particular story become extremely emotive in other parts of the country as well. So if you recently I've seen for example interviews with Dalits in places like Uttar Pradesh far away from uh, Hyderabad uh, our news pundits seem to think that these stories don't have resonance there but in small towns and so on you saw people saying that yes I am Dalit and yes I will now no longer vote for the BJP because of how they treated Rohit Vemula. This is a sort of a, a big question, I guess. Um, it's about this concept of Hindutva, Hindutva movement. Um, I mean, it's very easy. It's almost the default kind of setting for a lot of anti-authoritarian leftists to go, this guy's a fascist. Yeah. Right? But I want to sort of look at it again more systemically and ask, to what extent does the Hindutva movement sort of possess the classic ingredients of fascism? In terms of the social constituencies, it can mobilise sense of grievances about the past, sense of cultural superiority, um, an interpretation of history which is about grievance and superiority. Yes. Um, and a rejection of rational arguments against any counter-interpretations. I mean, that to me sounds like the sort of the classic recipe for fascism. Is that is that a fair assessment of where the BJP and where the RSS could be headed, where Modi could be heading? I think that's a very fair assessment. But I have a slightly different take on the fascist question. As you say, you know, and I agree with you, there are a number of extreme similarities between the classic, you know, uh, paradigm of fascism and, uh, you know, what's going on in India along the lines that you suggested. I think there are there is one very major difference, and that is that. India is an electoral democracy and a functioning one. Biggest one in the world, right? The biggest one in the world. So I would actually, you know, uh, draw the attention of your listeners to the writings of one of our, you know, kind of more interesting uh, thinkers whose name is Jairus Banerjee, who has a fabulous article uh, interview on what he calls electoral fascism, that whether or not you could actually mobilize the institutions of electoral democracy to deliver a kind of a political mandate, which is a bit like 
like fascism. I mean, surveys after surveys of the Indian middle classes, you will find surprisingly high numbers between 25 and 35 percent. And this is going back to at least 1997, mm. when, which at the 50th anniversary of Indian, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 50th anniversary of Indian independence, one of the leading Indian news magazines, India Today, had done a survey about whether or not people thought dictatorships were a good thing. And 30 odd percent of the population said that they would not mind a short period of dictatorship. So what we have is a very authoritarian kind of populism at the moment. Mm -hmm. To my mind, it will never tip into the classic dictatorship of the sort that we saw in the years of the 1930s and 40s or even the Latin American dictatorships of the later period. Mm -hmm. There will always be an electoral element within that. And I think the challenge for the BJP is precisely how to be fascist within the parameters of an electoral democracy just going back to that you mm. said that sort of the, the bedrock of the BJP's electoral success was this new middle class yes is it fair to say then that this new middle class this class is in a transition at least between you know working class or lumpen proletariat and middle class yes do they naturally view um, increasing authoritarian governance in increasingly nationalistic rhetoric sort of uh, alongside that authoritarian governance as a kind of prerequisite to further economic growth. See, I think that Modi and his core constituency maybe over, have overread their mandate. Okay, by by that I mean that there was a strong uh, pitch that made Modi made about being a decisive leader. Okay, and you know those of us who are familiar with that kind of literature, there is a big literature on the strong man or you know the Caesarist moment, really, where in a moment of great drift and chaos and. Uh, you might even say policy paralysis, as Modi did, there is a feeling that what is needed is a strong man to come in and to concentrate power as much as possible within himself and to take the country out of crisis. So for that, you need a bunch of connected narratives. You need to have a narrative of crisis. You need to have a narrative as to who, is in, who was responsible for that crisis. And then you have to have a third narrative, which is about the leader who will take you out of that crisis. Modi and the his use of language in the election, I think, was decisive in making these three narratives very vibrant and politically acceptable to not only people who were his core constituency, i.e. those who followed Hindutva. The anxieties of this new middle class was very much in play. Uh, it also resonated very much with uh, people, you know, industrialists and the capitalist classes. It did not resonate very much with working classes or with the peasantry. And in fact, if you look at his vote, he probably did not get more than ten or fifteen percent of that particular vote. So, you know, at, at these three at, at, at these three distinct levels, it seems to me that there, there are again fragments of classes which support an extended period of authoritarian leadership. But the BJP has a major problem, which is that it was opposed to the national emergency, which was as much of a fascist period that we have actually had in explicit terms. Uh, when people, for example, today say, is it a bit like the emergency? The BJP is very touchy about the fact that it has been compared to that you know, particular period because many of the BJP's leadership in the age group 50 to 60 were key members of the anti-emergency movement from that time. Um, to respond to your question about uh, middle-class uh, support for complicity in um, Hindutva fascism in exchange for uh, economic prosperity, this is, of course, anecdotal. Um, but it's, like to me, it's especially striking, um, 
lots of my family live in um, Kolkata, which is historically fairly progressive, fairly left-leaning. There's a vibrant campus culture. Um, My my family there are uh, both Hindu and Muslim because we're quite into into marrying. Um, And one of the things that um, I've been hearing in my correspondence with family and family friends is that the very people who in 2002, 2003, 2004, um, Hindus who were very open and vocal in their support for Muslims in the face of violence, in the face of um, intercommunal violence, who would talk about things in terms of, I stand in solidarity with my Muslim brothers and sisters, and it's, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all, have, in exchange for a shot at greater economic prosperity, um, especially in terms of the um, uh, new private contracts that are opening up in the public sector, when they've been um, challenged on the BJP's record of um, uh, demonising minority religious groups, they went, well, these things always have a cost and I've judged that this one's okay. Mm. Um, The exact words were when I was like, but, you know, what do they make of um, uh, this conflict with their... uh, progressive, inclusive politics, especially in regards to Muslims, the most common response was, well, what about them? Mm. And I think um, it is important to read that not just in terms of um, the, I guess, the success of the bourgeoisie's devil's bargain with the BJP, but also the success of a global climate of Islamophobia Mm. and uh, the effectiveness the, the political effectiveness of having a Muslim terrorist bogeyman at the heart of your politics. And that's something that we've seen, obviously, not just in India, but in this country too, currently seeing it as a justification for um, Erdogan's crackdown on Kurds and left-leaning academics. Yes. Um, the speeches are about Muslims. The crackdown is against everyone. Yep. Similar thing going on in India, no? Similarity, but you know, I mean, since you bring up Bengal, I want to, I'll just take a minute to talk about you know Bengal, Assam, Bihar, the kind of eastern mm. states really, and how this particular issue of nationalism and uh, the question of Muslims have has played out. I mean, you know, the thing is that there are some, there is a kind of material reality on the basis of which Modi's and the BJP's rhetoric about Muslims has found traction. It is not that there is nothing at all, and by that I mean, for example, if you take a look at Uh, the CPM's rule uh, and remember that the CPM's rule ended very badly they were completely washed out you know by the current party in power the Trinamool Congress which has an ambiguous relationship with the BJP Uh, you know they did not come to uh, why someone would find their claims to secularism slightly suspect is when you had Taslima Nasreen the Bangladeshi writer who was hounded out by Islamists back in Bangladesh Uh, the Bengal communists did not offer her any support at all. So, you know, one can see that that was... Also, there was a kind, you know, Bengal, Assam, Bihar, these are states that have sizable Muslim populations mm. between 25 and even 35% of the population. There is a question regarding border areas and whether or not there is quote-unquote infiltration uh, and, you know, you can t- uh, take a look at how currently the BJP is playing the question of uh, rising Muslim populations in the border uh, districts between Assam and Bangladesh. The areas which are south of Nepal and in that kind of area have also got a lot of madarsas which have Saudi Arabian money. So, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of issues which are, uh, uh, you know, which are out there. 
for the BJP, they basically have decided that they want to not talk about being anti-Muslim uh, if they can get away with polarizing the electorate on the question of national versus anti-national. The rhetoric of Muslim versus Hindu is not going to be done so much by the BJP. It is going to be done by its affiliates within the Sangh Parivar. That could be the Bajrangdal, that could be the anti-rationalist groups like the Sanatan Sansthan in Western India. Uh, it could be through a politics of uh, taking further pot shots at secularism. In a way, the BJP appears like a party which has a greater degree of understanding of firstly existing cleavages and how to play them but also of potential cleavages and how to make them wider and to that extent it seems to me that they have a closer year to the ground or at least in the last three or four years they have done to my mind that tide is now turning and that tide is turning for example if you looked at the massive defeat of the BJP in the Bihar elections which I thought was very telling Bihar had voted in an uncharacteristically favorable way for the BJP and its allies in the general elections of 2014, but almost entirely reversed its mandate in the elections of November of last year for the state legislature. And particularly you found that a lot of people in Bihar were very turned off by the beef, anti-beef, beef eaters, etc. kind of rhetoric. And the two or three times that Modi actually brought up the question of Muslims via dog whistles like beef or madarsas and so on, that did not really play out really well in, in, in Bihar. I thought also that before, you know, until the general elections, the BJP was uh, on an expansionist you know, course with respect to Bengal. And I don't know if that is the way in which it is going to play out in the uh, you know, legislative assembly elections which are about to happen in, Beng in, in Bengal. So I think that the moment for the BJP in Bengal has passed. Uh, Assam is the only state, I think, where they still have a fair amount of possibility of being able to play the, uh, to kind of divide, you know, to broaden the cleavage on the question of Muslims. But that could also be a part and parcel of general anti-incumbency politics there because the party in power has been there for, for about 15 years. Uh, on the question of Turkey, Aaron, since you brought that up, again, I think that there are some very interesting similarities between Erdogan and uh, Modi in particular. But but also in terms of the religious right in both of these two locations, uh, the control of the media and the intimidation of that media which has not been controlled by them I think is quite similar. You look at the uh, you know, journalists who have been arrested uh, in Turkey because they had footage of weapons going into parts of uh, Syria and you think in terms of journalists within in central India, particularly those who are working in tribal areas where there's a lot of politics and not only Maoist politics with relation to forest rights and things of that sort, there has been a police crackdown on, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, paramilitary crackdown on journalists there. Okay, so here's a hypothesis. Yes. We'll take away China. We're talking about the BRICS. Yes. We'll take away South Africa. It's actually not a member of the BRICS. They mm. just decided to throw themselves in there. But in regard to uh, Brazil, Russia, Turkey too, right? There's an interesting sort of phenomenon, which is there is the mobilization of this new middle class, often for very authoritarian politics. In the case of Brazil, it wasn't authoritarian politics. Yes. the Brazilian Workers' Party, but they built a, hege a sort of hegemonic political project on the base of these, this new middle class, right? Yeah. But it turned out to be very volatile. We saw that in Brazil last year, year before. We saw it in Russia in 2011, big anti-Putin yes. protests. We saw it in Turkey with Gezi. Yes. 
Do you think that could be transplanted to an Indian context, or is that being a bit lazy? No, there are, anal- there are analogous contexts. And, you know, I mean, my sort of take on this is that uh, the politics of neoliberalism is incre- in country after country is increasingly tending towards populism. And there is a number of reasons for that, because neoliberalism's economic, uh, social, environmental impact is a kind of a scorched earth kind of an impact, you know, let the chips fall they, you know, fall where they may type of scenario. So in that kind of a, and you know, most countries now are at least nominally democratic. So Russia is, Brazil is, and things like that. So, you know, if you were an old fashioned neoliberal, let us say like a Pinochet type, it would have been great. You had a dictatorship, you had the army, repression, you know, there you go. But now you don't have that. So you, you, you're kind of stuck in at one level in terms of, uh, you know, going rhetorically for a very wide constituency, which is full of contradictions, including class contradictions. You can't juggle this massive formation of classes and regions and castes uh, and hold it together for that long. You know, you've, uh, Modi's been a good juggler up to a point, but this has got to unravel on things over which you have little control. So, for example, Modi was keen on talking about how what a lucky man he was for India and he was referring at that point to the fact that, you know, oil prices had fallen from $102 a barrel to close to 35 And of course, India is an oil importing country. So that gives him a massive cushion in terms of what, how much public money he's able to save and what kind of projects he's going to be able to put in, the, you know, uh, he's going to be able to use the money for. But beyond the point, it turns out that it's not very good for India if the oil prices are falling massively. I mean, many of the places where India would like to sell things are countries which are massively affected by the declining oil prices. Places from which India would like foreign direct investment to come to India are places currently facing economic meltdown and things of that sort. And, you know, things such as uh, uh, global commodity prices. You know, these are things over which Modi had attacked the previous government very vociferously. And, you know, these days with social media, because obviously Modi was a master of social media in the 2014 election, one thing we should think about is that now each of us has a mobile archive in our hands. We can basically open up our phone, go to WhatsApp or Twitter, see what Modi said about exactly the kinds of things he's pursuing now in 2013, and find out that he's doing exactly the opposite of what he said then. So even the credibility that he had come in with uh, now begins to unravel as the uh, massive, you know, kind of raft of promises that he made appear to be not within the, uh, you know, grasp of, you know, in terms of uh, actually being implemented. So, yes, I think that there are many analogies there. The specificities, obviously, you know, are that uh, there is a Hindu element in, or Hindutva element in Modi's politics, which we don't see in the case of Brazil. Uh, there is, uh, you know, what is happening in Brazil now in terms of repression of students and so forth is being done by the populist party of the center left whereas in our case it is being done by the populist party of the right uh, in the, perhaps there are some you know analogies with uh, turkey but i think the geopolitical elements come in which are quite different uh, turkey obviously being a key player within the uh, you know middle east operation in you know, a theater of operations of american imperialist strategies not so much the case with india so there are one has to be mindful of both of these two things the uh, similarities of the kind of 
politics of crisis of the BRICS nations, and I think there are many elements which are similar, but also the specificities which come from the historical background of our nationalist movement, uh, the particular makeup of uh, class, caste, and religion, and the fact that geopolitically we are located in areas which have different degrees of importance to American imperialist strategies. So we've got about 15 minutes left of the show. Um, just to remind you, you are listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Ashzaka here with Aaron Bastani and Subir Sinha. So one of the things that um, I've been meaning, or I've been thinking a lot about recently has been what are the responsibilities of the South Asian diaspora in resisting right-wing cultural nationalism um obviously in india and resisting uh those narratives as they occur within the diaspora itself i do feel a strong sense sometimes that uh within south asian communities in the uk that we have adopted uncritically and replicate a logic of good Indians, bad Indians in terms of Muslim and Hindu divides. I think we have uncritically accepted Modi's narrative of an entrepreneurial, hardworking, uh, you know, um, class, both in terms of um, that should be where we focus political energies in India and also that's how we should see ourselves as an as, as an immigrant community within the UK. Um, what... What sense do you get in terms of um, how people make sense of Modi's politics in, in the diaspora? So, yeah, so I think that there are at least two different kinds of Modi constituents in, in the diaspora. One of them is a constituent not really for Modi, but for uh, for India. Okay, mm -hmm. And these are people who, uh, you know, who will say things like, let's not oppose Modi on foreign soil because it makes India look bad. Okay, That the kind of disunity is on display for, you know, among people that we live, uh, such as the British people or the American people and things like that. Uh, so, you know, and then the second one is really, you know, hardcore support for Modi. And we know that uh, Sangh Parivar, the RSS and its affiliates have uh, a very large presence in the UK. They have close relations with uh, not only, uh, you know, conservative politicians like uh, Bob Blackman or uh, Mike Gapes and things like that, but also, you know, party, uh, you know, labor uh, people such as Varinder Singh or uh, Keith Vaz and so on, who, uh, you know, who donated part of their salary for the Wembley event. So they are very well plugged in. They have close relations with the High Commission. They like to organize a number of socio-cultural events, which are also quite overtly political. For example, the Diwali Mela this year we saw was quite uh, openly being used as a recruitment ground for the Wembley uh, Jamboree that happened uh, towards the end of Modi's visit. Uh, likewise for the US, where obviously both in the UK and in the US, you have large numbers of people from Gujarat. So there's a matter not only of Indian or Hindu pride, but even of a regional you know, kind of pride, which is, you know, specific to Gujarat. Having said that, you know, the diaspora has also been massively involved in uh, actions against Hindutva and in publications against Hindutva. So, for example, some of the major documents that came out that looked at the connections between the Hindu right in India and the diaspora, uh, one volume which was called Funding Hate, which was released by the Americans, uh, you know, um, the people who were of Indian origin based in the US, laid threadbare 
how front organizations were being used, including among university campuses uh, and NGOs that were supposedly involved in aid work in India, whereas what they were doing primarily was funding RSS affiliates working in tribal areas and the like. There was also a successor document to that that was released, which had details about the same kinds of things happening from within the UK. So you had these two things going on. I think a third and fourth element that comes in in the opposition side is now we have sizable Dalit populations in the UK, which are also well organized, uh, as well as in the US. So, for example, they have been quite vocal in terms of thinking about the contradiction between Hindutva's claims and the continuation of caste-based discrimination. And these days we now find that there is a, you know, a further battleground, which is the universities in the US and in the UK. I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but the University of California at Irvine was being given a large quote-unquote gift by by an organization called the Dharma Foundation, where they were saying that they would like to fund uh, a, a future, you know, uh, academic positions in the study of Hinduism, but had also said that the person should not be secular, should be a practicing Hindu. And ultimately, the University of California in Irvine, after a global campaign, signature campaign, decided to not take that kind of money. We've got 10 minutes left. So I suppose it's what a fantastic conversation. Such a big theme. India, obviously, a hugely important country. Hugely important politician, Arundhra Modi. In terms of the kind of anti-intellectual sentiment going on in India right now, in terms of anti-secular, or you could almost say anti-democratic forces. Yes. Um, how strong are they? How diffuse are they within civil society? Here's a quote from an actor Anupam Kher? Yes, yeah, sure. Oh. And uh, he organised a demonstration against Indian authors who'd returned their literary awards in protest against the assassination of three writers and lynching of Muslims and Dalits. Mm. And the quote is, these words, secularism and intolerance, are basically coined by certain sections of intellectuals. That is quite a easy worldview, very compact, very easy to sell. I mean, is that is that an increasingly sort of widespread view of the Congress party of secularism of that kind of strand of Indian modernity is, are increasing numbers of people sort of buying into that well I mean look anti-intellectualism is a hallmark of all authoritarian politics uh, and in fact you know one could make an argument that authoritarian people do not like being questioned about their beliefs and so on but you know I mean again the Congress party has a lot of responsibility for having created a caste of or a group of intellectuals who were the cheerleaders for the Congress Party. I mean, if you look at some of the people that the Congress Party itself gave awards to for for example, Urdu poetry and so on, it turns out that they basically wrote very long poems in the honor of Sonia Gandhi or something of that sort. So there is a kind of a, uh, you know, intellectual uh, class really that has supped on the offerings of the Nehruvian state for a very long time. And to, from my point of view, it is not a bad thing that their credentials have been challenged and that they've been put on notice. Anupam Kher is an interesting case because, you know, he was a key actor in the Indian new wave cinema of the 1970s mm. and 1980s. And of course, his politics have become what they have become because of his, uh, you know, stated 
uh, allegiance to the politics of Kashmiri pundits because that is the ethnic group that he belongs to. Though as far as I'm aware, he's actually not himself sp- spent a lot of time in Kashmir. Mm. He's actually grown up in Punjab. Yeah. These are Brahmins who left Kashmir. Uh, these were Brahmins who were forced to leave Kashmir yeah. at the point of a, of the gun. Yeah. And you know, it, it was not just the case that they, you know, left. There were assassinations of key people in the Kashmiri Brahmin community. There were also gang rapes of uh, Kashmiri women that were widely publicized. Uh, these were, in some people might say, retaliatory with respect to what was going on with Kashmiri Muslims. But I think one of the problems with the Indian left and the Indian seculars has been that they have not taken on board the victimization of Kashmiri Muslims and the fact that many of the of Kashmiri Hindus and the fact that many of them have spent decades within refugee camps in very bad conditions. That also makes the argument for secularism slightly weaker. What I'm arguing for is basically the idea that our history of secularism has a number of, you know, kind of blind spots and a number of problematic silences over certain kinds of things. And the intellectuals who are getting attacked have something to answer for that. Having said that, there is a massive amount of irrationality in what is uh, in the kind of politics that is being pursued right now. For example, if you look at the person who got appointed as the head of the Indian Council for Historical Research, a very well-regarded you know, body of historical research worldwide, was a professor of tourism management whose entire... Uh, you know, contribution to Indian history was to say, who says that our epics are made up? We should think of them directly as sources of historical evidence. The Mahabharata and things like that. Yeah. Or you can, you know, think in terms of the Indian Science Congress. Again, one of those things which was uh, well respected around the world. But now we have papers on how there was television 10,000 years ago, or we had UFOs uh, that basically flew on the energy that people get when they perform certain yogic poses. So there's a fair amount of absolute uh, absurdity. And the killings of some rationalists in Western India, uh, like Dabolkar and Kalburgi, fairly recently, uh, who had debunked and challenged some of these highly irrational kinds of, uh, you know, statements, it seems to, and the fact that they are, you know, out and about and not much action has been taken against the perpetrators. You look at the footage of the BJP-affiliated lawyers who have beaten up JNU students and you know JNU uh, lecturers in within the you know precincts of the court, and have said so on television. I will kill him if I if I get the chance. He says on TV, and the wow. fact that uh, the man gets bailed within one hour, whereas the student from JNU Kanaya Kumar, who's we did not get to talk a lot about him, uh, you know he he's still not out on bail. I mean, if you think about how justice works, one of the people found guilty of 98 murders in the Gujarat 2002 episode, whose name is Maya Kodnani, who Modi made the Minister for Child and Women's Welfare after she had supervised the evisceration of pregnant women. She's out on bail on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And that was the point that Aaron Dutty Roy made, and that's why yeah. she's facing um, prosecution for contempt of court. And that's right, yeah. Um, so we've got uh, five minutes of the show left, and one of the things that I'm really keen to get onto is this. You, you've you mentioned violence against women in the uh, Gujarat pogroms, also in Kashmir. Mm. Uh, also in Kashmir. And one of the things that um, I've been thinking about, especially since watching a documentary by Rakesh Sharma called mm. uh, Final Solution, an excellent documentary, it's available mm. online, and I encourage people to watch it, mm. um, is one, 
women's complicity in acts of violence against other women or at the very least denial that these acts of violence are happening. Mm. And then the second is like, what are the possibilities for, and I use this word as a positive rather than a pejorative, an anti-national feminism Mm. in which Indian women, whether they are Hindu, Muslim, Adivasi or not, Mm. um, reject the violence done in the name of Mother India and the Indian idea. Um, one of the people who I'm thinking of in particular is uh, Meena Kandasamy mm, sure. and her works. Yeah. Mm. Well, look, I mean, you know, uh, there has been some very good, uh, you know, pieces of writing on uh, women and the Hindutva project. And I would basically recommend the work of uh, one of my old teachers, Tanika Sarkar, who did a lot of work on the so-called Durga Vahini. That was the uh, women's wing, if you like, of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the VHP. And also, if you look at Anand Patwardhan's documentary, you know, you've got women who are on video saying that they appreciated that their sons went and avenged uh, historical wrongs done by the Muslims via gang rapes and the circulation of those things on videotape and things like that. So it's actually quite shocking from that point of view. Uh, Modi particularly has a good relationship with women, uh, particularly comes across as a, at some point, point as a brother, but also he's a supposedly not married, uh, though we know that is not entirely true. So uh, there is a, he also plays a vulnerable person from time to time where he weeps in public about the fact that people might be threatening to kill him. So he has kind of got a good sense of how to push, quote-unquote, emotional buttons. On the question of nationalism and whether an anti-nationalism politics is possible and the role of women within that, uh, Unfortunately, it seems to me that we are in the moment of hyper-nationalism now. Uh, I mean, it is shocking to me and very disappointing that after the JNU episode, uh, parties of the left, including the CPIM, CPIML, have come and said, we are different kinds of nationalists. And I thought this would have been a good moment for them to have said, nationalism's political potential ultimately rests in an authoritarian kind of politics that we need to think of ways beyond nationalism as ways of creating a kind of political community. Um, Very quickly, final thoughts, Aaron? Cool, final thoughts. I mean, I think it's really important for people in this part of the world to really keep a very close eye, I think, on Turkey and India. And I think these are two particularly interesting regimes in the next couple of years, where they're going, it could be bad. I think it's worse in the case of Turkey than it is in India, I think, because we had a guest on a month ago now. Mm. She said it could potentially lead to civil war. I think that's not implausible. Mm. What you have with both regimes is effectively a legitimization process of highly contentious protest tactics beyond the parliamentary or the electoral process. That's always dangerous ground. So where people can help and offer solidarity to those uh, who are affected by these uh, you know, huge problems in, in these regimes, then I think they most certainly should do. So um, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Subir, thanks for coming on. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to hound you on the internet about some of the things we've talked oh, about Oh, they today? could uh, probably sort of find me on Twitter. So at, what's your handle? Uh, it is a very pretentious handle. It is <laughs> <laughs> at Pomo Gandhi. Okay, uh, that's 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 where they could probably get in touch, yeah. Cool, thank you so much for listening. I imagine we will do more shows on this and my pronunciation will be better. My mother is going to kill me. Thanks for listening. Join us next week. Goodbye.